This week on Weather Geeks, we mark the five-year anniversary of the largest tornado ever recorded, the El Reno Tornado. We'll discuss how the unusual tornado was and how it changed or didn't change the way people chase and research storms today. The Weather Channel's Mike Bettis, whose heart-pounding story of being tossed about by the tornado, will kick off the conversation. Later, we will be joined by author Brantley Hargrove, whose new book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, chronicles the life of legendary storm chaser Tim Samaras. Tim was one of eight people that lost their life due to the tornado. Stories of intrigue, reflection, and scientific discussion, all on this episode of Weather Geeks. And start off with Mike Bettis. Mike, thanks for joining us. Good to see you, Doc. Mike, you know, I think this is one of those storms and tornadoes that all you have to do is say the name. When I say El Reno, what does it conjure up for you? You know, for me, it was a, it was obviously a very personal experience. You know, I think so many people that, that know that tornado know it for so many different reasons, but maybe... You know, maybe most of all for what what happened to a lot of people that were out there tracking the storm that day. You know, including including my story. But for you know, but for me, uh, you know, it was an unforgettable experience. And and you know, it just seems like the five years have flown by. So it seems like it just happened yesterday. Well, well but before we get into your story, let's kind of rewind and set up the day. How did you and set up even before? Why were you out there? What was going on? Why are you embedded in the chase world that particular week? So, uh, as a, as the, for lack of better terms, lead, lead storm tracker for the weather channel during tornado season for several years, I was out there with our tornado, um, hunt project. And, uh, you know, what we were doing was basically we'd spend weeks on end out in, uh, out in the middle of the country, just, um, just tracking tornadoes, tracking severe weather. And we would do this, you know, about half of April and the whole month of May. And we, we've done that. We'd done it for, oh, four or five years up to that point. And so it was just, a, it was, for us, it was another day we were watching the weather. Uh, you know, that day we had started out and, uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma. Wait, we were we actually I think we started on Tulsa, ended up in Guthrie, and that's kind of where we started really our day, right. really observing the weather. And then gradually through the day, it took us a little bit closer to Oklahoma City, took us a little bit west of town. Right. So, talk to us. I mean, you you are a veteran chaser. I mean, you know you know what you're doing when you're out there. Before we kind of really bore into the sort of meteorological conditions that day, what is your typical day like? What are you doing as you're trying to assess where to be as you're uh, trying to figure out where you need to place yourself? What do you how do you approach things? Uh, I don't know if I'm I'm much different than anyone else that's out there necessarily. You, you get up in the morning, uh, you're looking at you're looking at the atmosphere, you're looking at the computer models, you're seeing what, you know, the uh, you're seeing what the high res models saying, you're looking at whatever Every other model saying. Is there You're anything, looking, any favorite thing you like to look at these days? Uh, HR. I mean, yeah, I, li- I like the the HR, and and you know, I what's great about a place like and the, the day we found ourselves there. What's great about Oklahoma is they have this mesonet, and it's the, it is outstanding. You can get all kinds of real time conditions, so you can really see where the dry line is setting up, where there's going to be some sort of moist tongue in the atmosphere, and it really gives you a great idea down to the county level of. Where where you could 
where you could set up and position yourself and be in a good spot. Let me talk a little bit about these mesonets because they're, they're really something that is needed around the country. We've got observations set up at the mesoscale for those weather geeks out there. Uh, the, the Radiosign network is sampling every 12 hours or so at a synoptic scale, but many of these things are happening at the mesoscale. And the Oklahoma mesonet, definitely take a look at it, provides that type of detailed information we need. So. If we, if every state could, could copy, you know, what Oklahoma has done, boy, I think we would be, uh, this country would be superb forecasters. If if anybody's listening out there on the Weather Geeks podcast and talking to Mike Bettis, make sure you are aware of these weather networks, these meso networks. Um, There are people out there that you should talk to because I agree with Mike. These are valuable and needed, not just in Oklahoma, but everywhere. Now let's kind of come back around to the day meteorologically. Uh, What was, what was happening meteorologically? Was this a typical day where there are things that caught your eye that were a little different? Uh, Yeah. Boy, the Cape was outrageous that day. Um, I think we had surface cape that was, you know, north of 5,000. Wow. Um, So we knew that once storms started going, they were just going to um, explode. They were going to get these massive towers in half hour, 45 minutes. You know, next thing you know, you're going to have, you know, and and we get these, you know, in... And in, you know, central Oklahoma, I mean, it doesn't, you know, in May, it doesn't take much to get the, the atmosphere going. And that day it was really juiced. So, you know, the, the instability was off the charts that day. And I think a lot of, a lot of chasers that day knew it, you right. know, and everyone was like, man, this is going to be a day to watch because this could be a really bad day for tornadoes. And Weather Geeks uh, listeners, the, the CAPE, the Convective Available Potential Energy, that's one of the primary things that we look for on these severe weather days, uh, CAPE and also Sheer and so five thousand cape. That's really off the meter. <laughs> yeah, I mean you you know it's a it's a number, right? You know yeah. we we typically say okay if we can get something that's uh, you know fifteen hundred or exactly. above, we're looking pretty good. Right. Five thousand, yeah. you know, surface based cape, you know, is 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 a little bit different than 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 others. But I mean it's it, you can you can read a little bit hot, but five thousand is crazy. Oh, it's still yeah. It, essentially, all you have to do is thump the atmosphere and it's gonna gonna go. So. Kind of walk us through. So 5,000 Cape, um, you know something's going to pop that day, um, and you know that it could be particularly bad. Um, what were the sh- Any idea about what the shear was like that day? I, I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, but it, it, it had to be pretty yeah. significant, especially low-level shear. You get some good low-level shear, and you're, you're, in, you're in great shape exactly. generally for big storms to form there. But I think for, for us, it was just where is it going to happen? Right. And really central Oklahoma, all 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 day long was the spot. I mean, there was no changing our mind. We weren't going anywhere else but central Oklahoma. And and, and you were there. And so we know, I think for those that don't know, there there was a, a tornado that you were caught in. And, right. and, and, and I know there's some thoughts that we'll talk about. What was it about this tornado? Uh, I mean, it was gosh, big. It right? was huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, when we, we finally got on the, the tornado, we were actually a little bit farther north. We were up in Kingfisher. Uh, and we had just completed a, a broadcast for uh, nightly news. We did a little, we did a little talk back with Brian Williams that evening, uh, and then you know we realized during that broadcast that this this monster supercell had formed just south of us, not that far, maybe a twenty minutes, and a half hour south of us. Um, so when we finished that broadcast, and I'm 
you know, I've got the weather channel in my ear. I'm listening to the scanners, you know, and now we're getting golf ball size hail, baseball size hail reports. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? So we're, we're driving south to get into this thing and we get into some of the hail and it's pretty significant. And we get down to... And what, uh, what are you in? What, you, where, what, what, what vehicle a, are you in? I'm in, a, um, I'm in a big GMC Yukon. So, you know, big, big Suburban in essence. Um, and we have three vehicles that are with us. We have two, we have two Suburbans and we have... Um, our satellite truck with us. And so that's our caravan of three vehicles that we're in. And we're, we're going uh, south down into El Reno. Uh, and I really didn't want to go south of I-40. I was like, if we can, can we stay north of I-40? Because south of I-40, I just didn't want to be there. Um, what, why? I, the, the roads, and I was, I was hoping we could stay north of, of, of I-40 and then maybe go east along with the storm. Because you get south of I-40, it's a lot of dirt roads. Um, it's not as great. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of north, south, east, west, but some of them are dirt. And that can be pretty dangerous, especially once they get wet, they get muddy. Um, so we saw the tornado. Um, and we were trying to find a spot. We just couldn't find a spot that gave us a good view. Um, so we're like, all right, well, we'll go ahead and we'll go just south of, of I-40. So we went just south of I-40, found a nice big wide pull-off, and all three of our vehicles uh, got off the side of the road. And I just, I'm like, my jaw hit the floor. This was the biggest tornado I had ever seen. I, I remember it vividly. It was huge. Um, it just looked like a rotating wall cloud on the ground. It was wow. a monster. It was a bluish aquamarine. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, this is this is crazy. Right. And at that point, I, realizing how big this thing is, uh, at what point did you know, once you really were in the midst of this, that, or did you really know that at some point you were going to get hit? Um... Yeah, that we that that became a realization at one point. But we, you know, we we had been off the side of the road. We did a broadcast. Actually, we did a live broadcast for the Weather Channel. Um, I remember Chris Warren and Doctor Forbes were in the studio, and they could see it too, clear as day, right behind me. Uh, we did a very short broadcast, um, and I, you know, against all my instincts as a broadcaster, because I'm like, I have a massive tornado in high definition that I'm broadcasting to the world right now. I couldn't get any better as a broadcaster right now. But in the back of my mind as a meteorologist, I'm like, man, we we might not be in the best position right now. We're relatively close to this thing. I mean, it was it was probably about uh, a mile away. Uh, but I was like, we, you know, we probably need to move and try to find a better location. Now, were you you were thinking this or were yeah. you saying this to your team at that point? No, I'm thinking that okay. while I'm broadcasting that, I'm thinking that in my head. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of have two two things going on in my brain at one time. Uh, so we wrapped up our broadcast and I remember telling Dr. Forbes and Chris, I think we're going to try to reposition here because I don't like where we are. Um, so we were on a divided highway, so it's a big grass median. It's a two-lane highway south, a two-lane highway north, uh, and a grass median in the middle with the cable, basically the cable dividers in the middle. So you couldn't you couldn't really turn around easily and get back north. Uh, I would have preferred to go back north, but we made the decision: okay, uh, let's let's go south. We'll get south of this thing, and for our purposes, uh, and it's it's changed actually even in the last five years. We had a satellite truck with us. Uh, and, and how that works, basically, is we plug our camera into the side of this truck. Uh, it's got a satellite dish, sure. and it shoots the beam up to a satellite in, in space, and it sends that signal back to the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel, you know, broadcasts it, that's broadcasts it out. Sure. That's how it works, right? Well, these satellites are geostationary satellites, and so they basically orbit at the equator. And so what we generally need is a nice, clear view of the southern sky. 
Uh, and so for us, having a big thunderstorm or a tornado between us and the southern sky is a bad thing that's because right. we won't be able to broadcast. So that's the other thing that I think about when I'm out there is, okay, can we get a nice view of the southern sky here? So I was like, okay, let's just get on the south side of this thing, let it go past us, and we'll just follow in behind it, and we'll have a beautiful shot the whole time. We'll never be knocked off the air. It'll be perfect. Uh, you know, it just so happened that in that time that we ended our broadcast and we're trying to get south of this thing, you know, the, um, the tornado grew from a mile wide to two and a half miles wide. Two and a half. Wow. Changed forward speed. It sped up. It went from about 25 miles an hour to almost 50 miles an hour forward speed. Um, did a slight jog to the south before it decided to go north. And, you know, it was just, I mean, you can't forecast that. And that is that and jog when, when you were hit? That jog, uh, I think all those things in combination yeah. um, did us in. So as we're going south, there's, there's um, one of our engineers is in the vehicle in front. Then it's myself, our producer, and our cameraman in my vehicle. And then we have the two satellite truck operators behind us. We're, we're driving down the road in a caravan of three. And I see the, uh, the first vehicle with uh, our engineer KP in it. And uh, we're all in the left-hand lane. And we're going south. And I see him, what I thought he was doing, I thought he was changing lanes. I thought he was getting into the right-hand lane. The tornado will be to our right. And I was like, why is he changing lanes? This seems so weird to me that he's changing lanes. The tornado's to the right. I, if anything, I'd expect him to be in the left-hand exactly. lane. Exactly. Here to find out, as I watched, he wasn't changing lanes. He was being sucked in the inflow of the tornado. So his giant Suburban was literally being sucked sideways off the road. And I didn't realize that until he kept going. Like, he didn't stop at the right-hand lane. He kept going off the shoulder, and eventually he got pulled into a ditch. And then I realized, oh, man. Wow. Because we ended up actually passing him. Um, as he got pulled into the ditch. And at that point, you know, I looked out my, my right window and I could see, you know, multi-vortex tornado. You could see the spins. It was like spaghetti, swirling spaghetti. And it, it was getting so close now. And I just remember at that point, um, I just said to everybody, hold on, put your seatbelts on, duck down, you know, get below window level and hold on. We're back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and we're talking today with Mike Bettis, the host of Weather Underground on the Weather Channel, and also Brantley Hargrove, the author of a new book called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tor Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Uh, you just heard the story of Mike Bettis, and uh, I think it's well documented what happened to Mike and his team. And uh, a little later in the podcast, I want to come back, bring Mike back in and get the rest of the story. But first, I want to talk with Brantley Hargrave Grove. I'm sorry, Brantley. Uh, you wrote this book about Tim Samaras, and I, I know that many of our listeners are aware of. Some may not be that Tim Samaras and his some of his team lost their lives in this particular event. Um, talk to us a little bit about your day and why you wrote this book, uh, Brantley. Well, you know, being a, a fairly weather aware person and uh, living in the Southern Plains, you know, here in Texas. Uh, was certainly following um, the events of May 31st, uh, you know, just through chaser accounts on Twitter and the like. Uh, and, and how could you not pay attention after May 20th? Um, it just seemed like Oklahoma had been taking a real drubbing. Um, and so I saw images of this incredible tornado. And then, you know, a few days later, once word kind of started to leak out about, you know, what had happened, you know, I heard that uh, Tim Samaris, his son, Paul, and um, you know his longtime chase partner, meteorologist Carl Young had all 
it all perished in the storm. And I'd been somewhat aware of Tim and his work. I'd seen uh, Storm Chasers on the Discovery Channel a few times. Uh, and so, I mean, just as a, as a journalist, um, I was curious. Uh, I, I wanted to learn more about this man, what his mission was, and what what drove him into such uh, dangerous proximity. And so I was working at the Dallas Observer at the time, um, and I begged my editor to send me to Oklahoma, where where they had been killed, to kind of try to piece the events together, and uh, to Colorado as well to, you know, piece his life together to find out who this man was, talk to his uh his chase buddies, his colleagues, um, you know, anyone who could uh, shed some insight into this man's life. Now, as, as a journalist, I, I'm curious because even within in our field and subfields of meteorology, there are varying opinions about chasing and how, how close we should be getting. Should we be even out there at all? There are people that have those conversations. What was your sort of a priori or coming in position on storm chasing before you got close to this? It was something I'd always wanted to do. I mean, I was really fascinated by these people who, you know, lie down to the plains after violent storms, you know, going after what everybody else is, is running from or sheltering from. Um, and, you know, I mean, I grew up in central Texas and uh, there's some very distinct um, tornadic events that, uh, you know, occurred when I was about 15 that uh, have been wedged in my memory ever since, you know, Gerald, Texas, 1997 being one of them. And so I've always, I've always been fascinated by uh, tornadoes and, you know, whenever my first job is a, is a, um, a, as a news reporter was at a little paper in Wyoming. I remember when this funnel cloud kind of came down out of the sky, just on the outskirts of, uh, of Gillette, Wyoming. And, um, I've always wanted to see one, uh, and I just, it's never had the chance. And so in some ways, you know, telling the story of Tim Samaras would be kind of a way of living vicariously through his adventures and learning more about this thing that had, you know, sort of loomed large at certain points in my life. And now I, I, I would consider you beyond the family and his close team members, uh, someone that has gotten to know Tim Samaras and who he was very well. Uh, why don't you give me and our, our listeners a little bit of your perspective on what made Tim Samaras so interested in tornadoes and storm chasing? What, what drove him? And I was looking through some of the notes and some of my own research preparing, and I, I think there may be some things that may even be surprising to people, perhaps about Tim and sort of his perspective on chasing compared to some of the academics out there that were doing it. So give us your Tim Samaras overview from your perspective. Well, yeah, I mean, he was just this uh, just this middle-class guy from Denver. Um, you know, he'd been interested in tornadoes ever since he was a little kid when he saw The Wizard of Oz. You know, it's kind of an anecdote about Tim everybody knows. Uh, was he was sort of this Ben Franklin type character, you know, when he was when he was a boy, you know, running running wires out from his bedroom to a power pole outside during storms to kind of conduct some of that ambient electrical energy to a, a light bulb, uh, and he, he proved incredibly adept at uh, figuring out electronics. I mean, his dad would would go out and find him old busted radios and bring them back, and Tim would fix them. I mean, he just had this innate skill, uh, and. That intensified, you know, the stakes got raised once he graduated from high school and was uh, uh, hired on as an instrumentation engineer at uh, the Denver Research Institute uh, there at the University of Denver. These guys who basically use um, research-grade electronics to characterize uh, shock forces from all sorts of different kinds of um, ex military explosives and, and, other, and other sorts of weird applied science type, type things. And uh, so he, he developed this ability to uh, gather data from uh, extremely dangerous, violent places. And uh, he was also a storm chaser. I mean, he was, you know, that that love of storms intensified as he got older uh, into this desire to go to go find them, to go see them up close. You know, after I think after the the birth of his his third child, Paul, um, you know, I think that was around the time Tim really started 
trying to learn storm chasing, you know, taking Skywarm uh, storm spotting courses, learning some basic meteorology so that he wasn't just wandering out there not knowing what he was doing. And he kind of developed a reputation as this, uh, as this really great storm chaser. I mean, uh, the National Weather Service would rely on his observations quite often as a spotter because they knew that uh, when Tim called in with an observation, he wasn't just freaking out about a really dense rain shaft. I mean, he was, so he was a credible he, his, 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 his reports were trustworthy. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, eventually, I mean, it's, you know, you wouldn't have ever picked Tim as the guy who accomplished what he was able to accomplish. But eventually he he took all these disparate seeming skills and uh, forged them into one one mission. Uh, you know, his his ability to use. Uh, research-grade electronics to to document violent forces and his ability to find tornadoes and to chase them and to maneuver around them. Uh, he eventually those, those eventually led to the uh, hardened in situ tornado pressure recorder, or HITPER, uh, his uh, his turtle probe. Yeah, and we're talking with uh, Brantley Hargrove here about his new book, The Man Who Caught the Storm. And you yourself have become a chaser. I, I know there is an interesting story about perhaps you uh, and a former Twistex member in 2017. Uh, I, I want to get back to Tim, and uh, there's a question I, that you talk about, about him perhaps uh, taking risk um, pre, even before this event. I want to hear about that. But before I do, I do want to hear about this uh, activity or, or, or happening with a Pizza Hut and Hurricane Harvey's eyewall. What's that all about? Yeah. <clears throat> well, so I did go chasing in 2014 uh, for the book because I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to live in Tim's world for a bit. If I was going to write about it, I felt like I needed to experience it. So I, I did go with um, some former Twistex members, and we witnessed the uh, Pilger event in Pilger, Nebraska in 2014. Uh, it was the first tornadoes I'd ever seen. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, I kind of found that storm chasing gets in your blood. Uh, and so in 2017, when Hurricane Harvey was steaming towards uh, the Texas coast, uh, Ben McMillan and I, you know, Ben McMillan's a, a former Twistex member, uh, he was going to be covering it. And, you know, I, I thought that it'd be interesting to go witness a hurricane. I'd never seen one before. So we, we met in Corpus Christi and once it became obvious that, uh, the hurricane was going to miss Corpus and was going to jog further North, we decided to kind of edge closer to it. Uh, you know, maybe kind of stay just outside of the, uh, the eye wall if we could, and uh, the tornado, uh, the, the the hurricane sort of shifted its track a little bit, and uh, we ended up uh, actually getting run over by the eye wall, uh, sort of the outer edge of it, and uh, had to hunker down in the lee of a Pizza Hut uh, combination gas station uh, for a few hours in Ingleside, Texas, uh, because we, we, I mean, obviously we couldn't go anywhere. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, my, my comfort zone was, was a bit exceeded, although in, in reflection, I realized we were pretty safe where we were. But it was, uh, you know, it was it wasn't like storm chasing. You know, you know, when I saw those tornadoes in Pilgrim, Nebraska, uh, you know, we were always we were always away from them, behind them. We knew they weren't they were, we knew we weren't going to get hit. And with a hurricane, we were inside it. You know, there's really no escape. So it was it was a very different experience. Wow. That, that's uh, so you certainly have uh, your own experiences to share as we're talking about Tim Samaras. Now, I w- want to get into one more sort of question before we bring Mike Bettis back in for uh, a roundtable here for the last several uh, minutes of the podcast, talking on the Weather Geeks podcast. Now, you you write and I, I quote, he has long been fueled by his role as an outsider speaking of Tim Samaras, what do you mean by that? And how did it drive the way he chased? Well, when, 
when Tim was, you know, when he developed his probe and he was attempting to deploy it uh, in tornadoes, uh, I mean, there was obviously a, a decent amount of skepticism uh, regarding his efforts. I mean, just think about, you know, all of, all of the researchers who'd come before, you know, these, these PhD uh, uh, atmospheric scientists who had tried, you know, with Toto uh, and then with, um, you know, uh, the first Vortex mission. Um, it gotten close, but uh, could never quite get that core deployment. And so, you know, along comes Tim Samaras, this guy with just a high school diploma um, who isn't affiliated with any of the major research institutions or the universities is coming along and being like, well, I'm going to do this thing. All of you could not. Uh, there was there was some doubt, um, to say the least. Do and you mean, uh, Do you mean doubt by perhaps the established experts of the field in terms of who is this guy and why does he think he can yeah, do of what he can't do? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, who, who is this person? Uh, we don't know who he is. And, and frankly, uh, you know, we're doubtful about his ability to be able to, to pull this off. And I think in some way, you know, I, th- I think that put a, uh, a, a bit of a chip on Tim's shoulder. I think, you know, I think, I think he was, you know, you tell Tim something can't be done uh, and now you're guaranteeing that he's going to give it his best shot. Um, so there was a certain amount of, of skepticism and doubt uh, surrounding his mission. Uh, and then that all vanished uh, in June 2003 uh, in Manchester, South Dakota. We're on the Weather Geeks podcast, and we're talking with uh, Brantley Hargrove and Mike Bettis. I want to engage both of you now back into the conversation. Uh, I think Brantley has given us a, a, a nice overview of who Tim Samaras was, and we also heard the story of Mike's experiences on the ground there with the El Reno, and we're reflecting on the fifth anniversary of this particular tornado. Mike, you left us with this point where you were being hit by the tornado. Yeah, so... What happened next? Uh, a lot of things happened. Uh, you know, our vehicle gets hit on the passenger side by tornado and it's a very um you know it's a feeling i've never felt before it's a very abrupt very hard impact um it almost felt like we got broadsided by another vehicle uh and then our vehicle is uh airborne and, uh, and according to KP, the engineer that I was referring to, whose vehicle ended up getting sucked in the inflow into the ditch, he said he looked out his window and our vehicle was 30 feet in the air. Mind you, we've got an 8,500-pound vehicle with about 1,000 pounds of equipment in it. 30 feet in the air. Um, our vehicle gets tossed across the median, across the two northbound lanes, uh, and into a field. And our vehicle then tumbles over and over and we you know for me i'll rewind for just a second here for me you know when we were in the air you know for me there was this feeling of weightlessness and i've I've told this story a few times before um and time stood still so but you were Um, aware of what was going on you were conscious the whole time conscious the whole time Uh, and i had two uh completely separate streams of thought happening simultaneously one was, was me as a meteorologist thinking, gosh, we're weightless. Literally, time stood still. It slowed down for me, and for me, it felt like we were in the air forever. And I thought to myself, my eyes were closed. I didn't know what was going on. And I thought, my goodness, like we're just floating and floating and floating. How high are we? Like, are we hundreds of feet in the air? Because we've not hit anything. Right. We're just floating. And so I'm thinking to myself, gosh, like 
this is weird. And so I know now when this vehicle comes down and hits the ground, that's going to be the moment that I die. Um, there was that sort of very stark reality for me. And then there was another stream of thought where it was literally angelic, if you will. Um, and I felt this sense of weightlessness, like I was, um, truly ascending to heaven. Like maybe I had already died and I saw my wife's face. Uh, and it was really a very surreal experience. Um, I think this is one that not many of us will ever have in life. I had never, uh, before. Um, the reality is that probably happened over the course of in reality, two or three seconds Seconds. for me, it was an eternity, but then there was this very harsh, sudden impact of our vehicle hitting the ground and then tumbling over and over and over. I remember hitting my head on the side airbag and just a really violent tumbling. Um, and I, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, like I feel all this, all this happening. So now, you know, I, I've, I know I'm still alive, but my goodness, this is really, really bad what's happening right now. Eventually the vehicle settles down, um, wheels down, um, and the first thing I do is, hey, is everybody okay? Is everybody? Um, Austin, um, our, our, our second cameraman and producer, he was conscious. He's like, yeah, I'm good. Brad, who was our cameraman in the backseat, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Everyone was alive, conscious. Um, our vehicle was mangled, um, but, and we couldn't get out the doors or climbing out the windows. And just, I remember looking, well, uh, real quick, before that happened, it's still really windy. Yeah. We're yeah, still kind of in the where, outer. Where are you we're relative kind of, to the tornado? I think we're still in the kind of the outer um, reaches of the okay. tornado. So we all just, I just tell everybody, stay ducked down. Uh, and finally, the, you know, the winds let up enough and I look out the window and I see the tornado just, you know, off in the field and we all just managed to climb out of the vehicle a little scratched up and bruised and bloodied a little bit. And, uh, I thought all, I thought the next thing I see is KP, our engineer come running over to us. And I thought, Oh my, am I seeing him a ghost? Right. I thought truly, I thought he was dead. Right. Um, and when he came running over, I was like, Holy cow, are you a sight for sore eyes? Um, but everyone was okay. Um, Brad and I just had a couple scratches and bruises. I had a little scratch in my, in my knuckle that needed some stitches. But Austin was a little bit more seriously injured. He had a cracked vertebrae uh, in his neck. He had a cracked sternum. He had a little bit more significant injuries. But, but, uh, and he's recovered since. It was a long process for him. But it was a miracle that we all walked away yeah, from that. Well, and we're, we're, you know, we're blessed to have you here to tell this story. Uh, yeah. Brantley, I want to bring you back. This, this, this next segment here, we're, we're just going to talk as three people talking about tornadoes and storms so feel free to interject ask each other questions let's just kind of go some places with with the discussion here this is kind of a a, a free-for-all uh brantley what concerns what scenarios concern you the most as someone that has covered this from a journalistic perspective but also now uh, has dipped your feet in the pool of chasing what what are are there scenarios out there that concern you and how chasing has changed is there too much risk taking what, what are your thoughts you know I, I think i and a lot of people had wondered if what happened in el reno um would change some behaviors in the chasing world i mean you know, Mike and Tim and Carl and Paul weren't the only people to get into trouble that day. There were other chasers, um, uh, you know, who didn't get killed, but they, they certainly got into big trouble. Was it a problem? uh, Was it because of convergence, chaser convergence issues or just the erratic nature of this particular tornado where Mike talk about that, that random jog there? Was it a a combination of many things? 
Yeah, I think it was probably a combination of, of, of all of those things. I know there was in certain places some convergence, but also, I mean, just the, the tornado was just all over the place. I mean, it's by turns going south, southeast, east, you know, northeast, and then north there at the end. Um, so it was, you know, doing just a lot of things. Chasers wouldn't normally expect a tornado to do it all at once. You know, it's all, all, of these, all of these sort of erratic movements plus, um, you know, increasing its forward speed pretty drastically and then growing up scale explosively. Um, you know, these are just all things that, you know, most chasers aren't accustomed to, uh, to seeing all at once like that. Uh, so, I mean, it just caught a lot of people off guard. I mean, really it was a storm that was, uh, uh, designed in some ways to catch storm chasers, especially a storm chaser like Tim Samaras who needed to operate, uh, to the North of the tornado and to try to get in front of it. Um, it was especially dangerous for him. And so, you know, a lot of people got into trouble, and I wondered if uh, if it would if it would change things. And I think with some it has. I think uh, for some for some storm chasers it was a wake up call. Um, but I think for a lot of others, I haven't I haven't really seen a whole lot of uh, change in behavior. Right, I mean, we, we yeah. saw just this year uh, yeah. a guy yeah. basically drive into a tornado and get rolled. I mean, it looks like they survived. But um, uh, you know, and, uh, even more recently, I, I think we saw. Uh, radar images of uh, of a uh, of what looked like an ongoing tornado, and then this line of uh, GPS uh, dots, you know, a uh, 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 spotter network or whatever it's called, uh, you know, a bunch of people fleeing inside of the bear's cage. Um, so it's yeah, you know, I, I don't know that necessarily it's changed behavior that for the wider community all that much. There's still a lot of people who like to get close, and I mean, I, look, I get that impulse as a person who's chased. It's really fun to be close and to watch those radial winds move into the lowest levels of the vortex. Yeah, you know, I want to get Mike's perspective on what you just said. But before I say that, I mean, I, I will say that I've been someone that at times has been a little critical of the chase chasing over in the earlier part of my career. Um, but as I've reflected on it, you know, I, I'm a professor at a major university's atmospheric sciences program, and there is something to be said for being able to see what you're learning and not just the equations. They get out there and see what's happening in the mesoscope scale, being in the mesoscale. So my, my perspective on it has evolved quite a bit, although I, I am still a little bit sort of, sort of uh, bearish, if you will, on some of the more risky behavior that I see out there. Mike, Mike do you agree with what Brantley said or you have anything that Jack interject? Yeah, differently? I agree with you both. You know, I think I was also maybe a little skeptical about, about what people did, you know, in and around uh, tornadoes and, um, but when you're there, you know, I learned a lot of things over my years of chasing about severe weather that I didn't know right. um, by just looking at a radar, by just reporting in a studio. But I would say, that, you know, chasers that, that found themselves in tough positions with the El Reno tornado, especially ones that were there, I think it changed them. Uh, I think their experience, you know, was, you know, uh, difficult. And I think knowing what happened to Tim, you know, really hit home for... Uh, so many ch chasers that were there that day or chasers that knew Tim, I think for them it changed. And I think it's like any disaster. If it if it doesn't happen to you, you're like, okay, whatever. If it does happen to you, it, it's different. Right. Um, and so I think for the chasers that were there, I think for many of them, their, their once cavalier attitudes um, towards tornadoes changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I see that as well. Let's let's talk about just, let's, let's be weather geeks here for a second. Um, there's been a relative lull in high-profile tornadoes in the last seven or so years uh, after 2011, 2013 tornado seasons. Um, there continues to be development, building. I think here even in 2018, I was talking to the Weather Geeks producers um, who were kind of down in numbers. Um, what What is your take, um, uh, Mike, on 
tornadoes in general are do you buy into these capabilities now that we talked about in a previous podcast the ability to predict tornadoes out season a couple of weeks to months uh do you think that their tornado frequency and intensity is changing in relation to things that are going on in the broader climate just what are your thoughts on tornadoes uh, yeah. from a science perspective I, you know a couple of different things you know i i do think that in in the backdrop of of climate change we might see the tornado season shifting you know it maybe it's maybe it's starting earlier than it once did um maybe it's maybe it's lasting a shorter period of time maybe it's a little bit more um concise than it than it once was but you know i look at the, the love we've had over the past several years of you know we haven't had any ef5 tornadoes no you but you look at like you know 1999 and the big more tornado we, we went another what nine years i mean we went we went many years before we saw another one right. until greensburg you know so you can have a lot of space you know between violent tornadoes um so i don't know you know i think the jury might still be out there but i, I think that we can you know i think we're going to see things over time evolve over decades where um tornado season changes it, its typical time and i think maybe it's typical locations i think we may see you know tornado alley shifting maybe shifting farther north so places um you know that maybe didn't get the frequency or the veracity of tornadoes that they once did may soon see that change yeah Bradley what are your thoughts on sort of the science of tornadoes tornado prediction even the thoughts out there uh, that you know there could be a danger in giving us too much lead time there's a lot of discussion that we've had in previous broadcast uh, podcast about that so just what are some of your thoughts or reactions some of what Mike just said and also your own thoughts you know, in terms of lead time, I mean, I think there there can be a certain amount of diminishing returns uh, the more lead time you get. Because we do know, I mean, you know, sometimes people uh, don't pay attention all that much. Uh, you know, they or they wait till the last moment, you know, as we saw in uh, in Oklahoma in 2013, you know, people waiting to the last minute and then fleeing, uh, you know, as the tornado is already on the ground, you know, when it's kind of too late. But um, no, I agree with Mike. I mean, it's, it's 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 been interesting. We've had a real drought this season. I was actually going to go chasing uh, last week, I think, in Oklahoma, and then I decided at the last minute not to go just because it didn't seem like it was going to be worth it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I've, you know. I did some research about this for the book, and um, it does, you know it does, as Mike said, seem like the jury's still out. You know, I mean, it's you know, sh- sure we're going to have more uh, instability. Is you know, if, if you have more heating of the oceans, you're going to have more moisture going up in the atmosphere. But, um, you know, it, there's also a concern that, you know, maybe there's uh, going to be less, uh, less wind shear. Uh, so, you know, what's, you know, what, what, what happens whenever you have more of one, but less of the other. And I, I think one of the things I, I heard just in talking to researchers is that, you know, maybe, you know, and this is, this is still kind of speculation, but that maybe you'll have fewer overall events, but you know, whenever the, whenever all the ingredients do line up, you'll have uh, some really, really bad events. Um, so it's, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. Yeah. And I, I want to echo both of your thoughts on the jury being out. I served on a national Academy of sciences panel uh, two years ago that looked at attribution of current extreme weather events to climate change. And there are certainly some events that have stronger linkages in the peer reviewed scientific literature, um, extreme heat waves, uh, lack of cold events, uh, heaviest intense rain, intense rainfall events, Convective storms, tornadic storms, that fell on the lower end of the conclusive spectrum right now in terms of our review for that federal report. So I think you're both are spot on. I'm, I'm talking with Mike Bettis from the Weather Channel, host of Weather Underground, and also Brantley Hargrove. He's the author of a new book. Make sure you get it called The Man Who Caught the Storm. Uh, 
we're getting close to the end. I'm really loving this Weather Geeks podcast. I hope you are too, because we can really dive deep with our guests, and that's what we're doing today. Um, get an opinion from both of you. Do you think the terminology and the way we warn about tornadoes is adequate? Do people understand tornado watch versus warning? Are we doing the right things? Do they understand polygons and terminology? Mike, no, Mike, no, 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 no. Mike's no, jumping in no. with no. <laughs> no to all of the above. I think it's confusing to people. I think that, that they don't understand the terminology. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that as meteorologists, sometimes we assume that people know too much, uh, know more than they really do. Uh, and I think that we're excellent meteorologists, forecasters. I think we're terrible broadcasters. I think we're terrible communicators. I think that we've got to come up with a system that's just easier to understand. I think that in some regards is is even why Dr. Forbes and the Weather Channel developed TORCON. Yeah, but was you know, a, people, some people push was, back on TORCON. I, I get it. I totally get it. But I think it's worth trying. Yeah. I think something that's easier to understand, a, I mean, a zero to 10 scale, people get it, right? You know, why does Homeland Security go with uh, threat levels that are, you know, it's, it's green, it's yellow, it's orange, it's red. People understand that, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I just think we're... I don't know if we'll ever get past the polygon necessarily because you have to forecast where it's going. Sure. But I don't know if people are always situ- situationally aware of where they are. Right. <laughs> some people don't even yeah, know what yeah, county yeah, they live yeah, in. Yeah, there so. are people who can't name counties. I've done some research. and We've read some research at Georgia on the fact that some people think the tor- polygon says that means that the tornado is in the center of the polygon. They don't have any clue what that means. Yeah. So what do you I do? I think we could do a better job. I, what I mean, so many people have looked at it. I don't have the answer. So what do you do, though? And, and Brantley, I want to come to you with your thoughts on this, too. What do you do when you're on weather underground and there's a situation i mean are there things that you've just that you try to convey the message the best thing that you can do and i think this is where you know local forecasters have a great advantage is knowing the community because if you can give people something like a landmark and say uh hey the tornado is going to be right near the ball fields and city hall so if you live in that, you know, if you live in Riverwood neighborhood, you need to be on the lookout and please, you know, get to your basement right away. Um, it's a little bit difficult, more difficult on a national level to do that. But I think that's um, if you can re- relate something to somebody like that, something they're familiar with that resonates with them, then I think it makes a difference. What, what about your thoughts on this, Brantley? I think um, I think there's a large misunderstanding um, in the public about uh, what meteorology is. Um, you know, I, I can't. Can't imagine how many times I've talked to people who are like, oh, you know, there's this meteorologists on TV. I don't know anything. They don't know what they're talking about. Oh, you yeah. Know? We, we, I mean, I'm sure Mike you guys and have heard those that. stories. And, and, and <laughs> sure. I don't think the public really understands that what you're trying to convey to them are probabilities. Um, that, I mean, you're, you're, you're in essence trying to predict the future. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, uh, and I think there's got to be a continuum as well. I mean, you know, it's, if, People in, in central Oklahoma, I mean, they probably understand a lot of the terminology and what the warnings and watches mean. Uh, and then maybe, you know, uh, you know, around here where I live in Texas, around Dallas, maybe a little less so just because we don't get those, those those tornadoes around here all that often. Um, and then when we do, I mean, you know, you, you see the uh, you, you see the consequences of people just uh, not paying attention to their surrounding environment. I mean, I think there is a, a certain level where the, the public does need to take uh, take responsibility for itself and pay attention to the natural world. I mean, we don't own this planet. We're just we're just guests here, and uh, we don't control everything. And I think uh, 
I just wish people would be a little more weather aware so that, you know, you have a situation where we have, you know, a, a high end tornado going across a highway after Christmas in uh, 2016 here in North Texas. You don't have people on the roads just driving into the storm and not having any idea what's going on. Um, and I don't know how to get people interested in that, honestly. I mean, to me, the atmosphere is endlessly interesting and I want to pay attention to it and track what's going on at all times. But um, I, I'm just not sure exactly how to how to how to convey that level of excitement and, uh, and, and, and just awe that, you know, people should feel about what's going on in the sky that, um, you know, that they would need to, to make better decisions on days when, Hey, you know, things are kind of stacking up and it could be bad. So, uh, you know, be aware of what's going on. You know, in this last 22nd response from each of you, will we see, well, we will see another El Reno type tornado, but will we see in your opinion and why a tragedy like we saw with El Reno? I think that it's inevitable. I think that there are just more people in this country at risk than, than ever before. Listen, our, our population is growing. Our cities are expanding. And I think that we'd be foolish to think that it wouldn't happen again, that a, that a Joplin wouldn't happen again or a Moore wouldn't happen again or an El Reno yeah. wouldn't happen again. Um, and so to me, we have to do everything we can to protect ourselves. Yeah, what, about, what about you, Brantley? 20 seconds or so. Yeah, I mean, Tim once said... Uh, you know, someday somebody's going to get bit. Uh, and I don't think he meant that in relation to himself. And I think often we can't see how uh, close to danger we come sometimes in the things that we do. But um, there's going to be another El Reno, uh, you know, maybe not this season or the next, but at some point. And, uh, you know, there's inevitably going to be a, another chaser who pushes too close. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a matter of time unless there's a, a profound cultural change in, um, in, in storm chasing. That's where we're going to end it today. I want to thank um, Mike Bettis. Make sure you're checking him out every evening on Weather Weekday evening on the Weather Underground on the Weather Channel. And also make sure you go out and get Brantley Hargrove's new book, The Man Who Caught the Storm. I have a copy in my possession, and I can't wait to crack it open here this evening. Thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Mm-hmm.